0: Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. I am Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. And you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done using collections at the Hagley Library, especially by scholars who have received support in the form of research grants and fellowships from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joining me today is Jonathan Robbins assistant professor of history at Michigan Technological University, and we'll be discussing his book titled, Oil Palm, A Global History, available now from UNC Press. Jonathan, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Gregory. It's good to be here.
0: Thank you. Now, why don't you introduce us to your project, Um, Oil Palms, set in a global setting. I really enjoyed reading the
1: book. Why don't you sort of set it up for our listeners? Sure. Well, the book is framed as, uh, a history mostly of palm oil, which is the main commodity that comes from the oil palm tree. Uh, but I realized it didn't make a lot of sense to tell the story of palm oil as a commodity without really digging into the history of oil palm as a thing, as a plant um, and as something that has grown in many different contexts and many different ways around the world. Um, so the history began as a commodity history, but but turned into a commodity history plus agricultural history, plus environmental history. Um, and it, uh, grew rapidly, um, the, the scale of it, uh, just ballooned as I worked on it from uh, initially, uh, a 20th century history into a 19th century. And uh, at this point I have, you know, so substantive chapters going all the way back to the 15th century, which is well outside my, my area of expertise. But, Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was important to really contextualize the story of this, this plant and this commodity that is, I think still very poorly understood by, by many people, um, particularly in the global north, uh, despite the fact that we consume it every day uh, in all sorts of different products.
0: Uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I did learn so much reading the book. Um, why don't you sort of give us the narrative arc? It is incredible mm-hmm. how you've spanned so much time and so much space. Um, maybe sort of uh, um, define the, the boundaries of your study for
1: us. Mm-hmm. Well, the story begins uh, really uh, in prehistory, um, in in uh, sort of the earliest um, interpretations through archaeology as well as oral history um, of how humans uh, settled Western Africa, which is where the oil palm is originally from. Um, and so, I, I try to give a, a, a survey of the latest literature, um, the latest findings, um, and I tried to, to sort of upset, I think one of the prevailing understandings of agriculture and agricultural history in Western Africa, uh, which is the sense of gradual forest destruction. And I think there's been some really some really groundbreaking research um, by uh, scholars using archaeology, paleobot, and the other techniques um, that have really shaken up this view and have really changed our, our understanding of, of African agriculture as something that is rooted not in necessarily uh, hacking and burning down rainforests, but in something that is uh, in some ways creating forests um, and taking advantage of climactic changes. Um, as it turns out, the oil palm is a really important part of that story and a really important marker um, of human communities moving uh, and bringing agriculture throughout different parts of Western Africa. So um, I start with this really long DeRay view um, to, to really pound home this idea that the oil palm is an African crop um, and has been cultivated in a diverse number of um, uh uh, ecological settings, but also cultural settings for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and it's its history as an important plantation crop, a plantation commodity is really just a tiny, tiny fraction of that history. Um, so having tried to sort of sketch out that, that groundwork, I follow the oil palm through history um, and try to figure out where it first shows up in the historical record. Um, mm-hmm. And there's unfortunately a really common fact or or supposed fact that pops up all over the internet uh, that uh, claims that palm oil is found in a series of first dynasty tombs from ancient Egypt about 5,000 years ago. Um, And this was based on some chemical analysis done in the 1890s. Um, And historians picked up on the suggestion from one paper in the 1890s that palm oil turned up in these Egyptian tombs um, and didn't, Pay any attention to the follow-ups uh, work in in chemical um, analysis, which uh, uh, conclusively disproved this. Um, mm-hmm. And Egyptologists, uh, this is a, a well-known fact um, uh, that palm oil was not found. Um, but this idea that there's this connection between Palm oil and, and ancient Egypt uh, has been incredibly persistent. Uh, it shows up in you know all kinds of um, literature. That uh, just trying to give some historic context for it, um, and it's, it was rather famously used by the American Palm Olive Soap Company uh, to uh, you know to try to link this commodity that they used palm oil um, with, as they put it, ancient Egyptian beauty secrets. And it's completely fictional marketing campaign. It has no basis in reality. Um, And so uh, I I do a little bit of debunking in these early chapters, um, trying to figure out where the oil palm does first appear in the historical record. And there there are a couple of, Candidates, uh, there's there's one I think fairly convincing um, record that shows up in an Arabic language source from the 13th century, um, but it's not it's really not until uh, Portuguese ships begin making regular contact with the West African coast that we really start to see um, evidence of of oil palm in in the written historical record. Um, and I, I follow the story from there, trying to trying to see how. Uh, the oil palm plant and palm oil as a commodity uh, spread out of Africa. Uh, and it's a very gradual process. Um, and it has it really um, doesn't accelerate until the 17th century and the 18th century when the slave trade, transatlantic slave trade, reaches this incredible peak um, and, and brings a lot of uh, palm oil and oil palm trees themselves out of Africa and into other parts of the world. Hmm.
0: It, it is remarkable how... Um, the story of this species and its, well, series of species actually, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but how the oil palm spreads um, as a result of globalization and as a result of both colonialism and capitalism. Um, but before we get to that, perhaps you could describe mm-hmm. for us a little bit of the cultural significance of palm oil in West Africa, um, how it's used and how it intersects with traditional life ways there.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, at a really basic level, it's a vital food. Um, it provides calories in the form of fat. Um, it also has a lot of vitamin A, which is a fat soluble vitamin. Um, it's it's uh, in areas where the oil palm is predominant. It's probably the key source of vitamin A in the human mm. diet. Um, so it's an incredibly important food stuff. Um, it's also used, and, and I hesitate, I hesitate in the book as well to generalize because there's the the cultural diversity in Western Africa is just mind-boggling. But generally speaking, palm oil is used as a food. Uh, It's also used as a cosmetic product, uh, rubbed on as a skin cream or as a hair treatment. Um, It has an enormous range of medicinal uses, um, mostly for uh, treating skin ailments, but also as a a delivery mechanism for herbal cures. Um, It has religious significance in some cultures um, uh, associated with certain spirits or deities. Um, for example, uh, in the Yoruba tradition, um, there's a strong association between palm oil, which is red, um, and smallpox. Um, and so there's a sense that uh, palm oil uh, and other products of the oil palm tree, including palm wine, which is a white uh, sap that, that naturally ferments into wine, that these colors are are important in, in both physically combating smallpox and spiritually combating it, uh, avoiding the red, offering deities, the white, um, to try to sort of balance out this. Um, and palm oil is used for, you know, all sorts of uh, other ritual purposes, um, you know, uh, anointing newborns shortly after birth. Um, and this is a practice that that's carried over and, and uh, adapts really easily with, with um, both Christian and Muslim religious practices, as well as these um, move into um, oil palm growing areas of West Africa. And so then
0: uh, as the, Oil palm spreads out of West Africa. What path does it take, or what path
1: did it take, rather? Well, it it literally rides with uh, slave ships with the slave trade. Um, the first exports of palm oil uh, probably probably went to Portugal, although there's no clear um, historical records that we found of that. Um, but by the 1600s, there are really clear. Um, there's really clear evidence that oil palms and palm oil are showing up in the Caribbean. Uh, some of the the earliest records from Barbados, for example, show that um, plantations are buying casks of palm oil for their enslaved workforce as a food probably also as a ritual object or a ceremonial uh, substance. Um, but they're also planting oil palm trees to try to cultivate this, this African crop in the New World. Um, and it doesn't appear that there's any effort to cultivate it commercially. Um, uh, the main goal seems to be subsistence for enslaved populations and their descendants. Um, and it's about this period, the, the early 1600s, that uh, oil palm also shows up in Brazil, um, in the state of Bahia in the Northeast, uh, where, where it really um, takes off and, and really finds of foothold in um, some of the, the unique ecology of that area. Um, and it's in this period in the 1600s as well that palm oil starts showing up in North America, in Europe, um, in, in England. Uh, it goes from something that just doesn't appear at all, the word doesn't even exist in, in English language books in, in the 15th and in early 16th centuries. And then suddenly it's showing up everywhere. It's showing up in botanical books. It's showing up in herbal books. It's showing up in shopping guides. It's showing up in all sorts of things as a, as a fairly commonplace medicine. Um, and there, I, I was not able to find a period where it, where it was extremely exotic. It, it jumps straight into this very mainstream medicinal use um, very rapidly. Um, and so it wasn't widely used. People weren't consuming large amounts of it. On a day-to-day basis in Europe, um, but it was not at all a rare or exotic substance. Uh, you know, there, there's one great book that uh, recommends rubbing palm oil on the back of your sore horse uh, after a you know long day's riding. So uh, mm-hmm. this is you know, it, it. It very quickly becomes an everyday medicinal commodity in Europe, which which borrows directly from African medicinal practices, mm-hmm. um, particularly the use of it as skin treatment.
0: And both of these cases as food for enslaved workers, as well as a common um, everyday uh, medicine and um, consumable, both of these situations bring up or introduce one of your key themes, which is cheapness, the inexpensiveness of this product, which would make it desirable as a means of uh, feeding enslaved workers, as well as um, help us to understand how it so quickly became such a common day-to-day consumer good in the global north. Um, Perhaps you could build a little bit on cheapness and market price and the role it plays in your story. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, this is a a key point in the what i see is the shift from the first part of the book to the second part of the book which is how how palm oil becomes this mass market commodity Uh, this is a 19th century story Mm -hmm. um and as you mentioned it is fundamentally about cheapness um in, in these really early roles for palm oil uh its unique qualities are highly valued it's bright red color it's it's odor which um is reputed in historical sources to smell like violets. Um, I personally have never gotten a violet smell from palm oil, uh, but um, you know, sense of smell is a very subjective thing, much like taste. Um, so this color-
0: This floral, I'm sorry to interrupt, but is it a, you know, perhaps a floral uh, aroma or how the would there you are, There
1: it? are floral notes. I tend to get more vegetative, vegetally tastes <laughs> and smells sort of a pumpkin-y, maybe even carroty kind of flavor. Um, But these qualities had been highly valued uh, when palm oil was used as medicine um, and as food for enslaved workers in in the Americas. Um, But palm oil in the 19th century becomes this mass market commodity, and those qualities within a matter of years, lose all of their significance. Palm oil is bleached, it's deodorized, uh, it's used interchangeably with tallow, which is a product that's derived from from animal carcasses. Um, And it's used in soap and candles and other things. And palm oil is used as a substitute for tallow solely because it's cheaper. Um, it's the only reason it's widely adopted in these industries is because it's cheaper and it's cheaper because of the um, the unique ecologies and, and cultures of production that produce it in Africa, you know, leveraging um, uh, really a, a very bountiful natural environment that, that makes palm oil abundant, but also social systems that make it relatively cheap to produce vis-a-vis tallow and other commodities. Um, And this is really the story of palm oil uh, into the 20th century. Uh, It's used because it's cheap and it's constantly substituting for other products that uh, had previously been used, but are now phased out because they're more expensive.
0: So in the 19th century, then um, is the main global source of palm oil continued to be West Africa?
1: Absolutely. Um, And the region that is today Nigeria Nigeria is by far the biggest exporter, uh, the Mm -hmm. biggest producer. Um, There are pockets all across the the Western African coast that that export, um, but uh, southeastern Nigeria becomes uh, by far the biggest exporter in part because it has this amazing natural environment for oil palm. Um, There's an enormous density of oil palms in the area. and hundreds of years of agricultural practices of shifting cultivation in the region had built up um, pretty massive stands of, of oil palm. Uh, and there's a massive population in this area that can exploit this, this, this crop and produce it for export. Um, so it, until the uh, really until uh, 1920, uh, West Africa is, is by far the largest exporter of, of, of palm oil in the world mm. market. Um, and Brazil, for example, never becomes a major exporter. Um, lots of palm oil is produced in Brazil, but it's almost all uh, consumed locally as food or for soap or for other products. Mm. Um, and oil palm almost goes extinct in much of the Caribbean. Um, it, it doesn't; it's not commercialized anywhere, um, and it it disappears from places like Barbados, Demerera. Um, There's some on the larger islands like Cuba and Jamaica. There are pockets that that survive, but it, it does not become a really endemic species in, in these areas. Um, so West Africa uh, has sort of a, a natural monopoly uh, until the 20th century on this really important commodity.
0: Um, that, is, that is just fascinating. And well, then how did um, that density of this resource in West Africa, perhaps particularly in Nigeria, intersect with colonialism and the 19th into the 20th century uh, scramble for Africa, um, dividing where European powers divided up the incontinent Um, amongst themselves, as it were.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that I've wrestled with how to present it in the book, and I wound up taking three chapters and shrinking them to one. Um, And I think I I, I risked oversimplifying a lot. But um, I think a lot of scholars who are not Africanists tend to draw a straight line between the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, the development of commodity trades like palm oil, And colonialism, the scramble for Africa at the end of the 19th century. Um, And it's a lot more complicated than that. There are a lot of intervening steps. And for for most of the 19th century, um, direct colonial control, that is Europeans occupying land, controlling trade, uh, is not how palm oil is produced and it's not how it's exported Um, the industry remains almost entirely under the control of african states um, uh, and african communities who are who are producing uh, for export because they want to buy things that that foreigners um have to sell like cloth salt weapons um, metal tools and objects um and so i I don't want to you know characterize this as, as an era of you know uh, free trade. There's a lot of restrictions on trade. Uh, there's an enormous reliance on slavery in the, both the production and the transport of palm oil in Africa. Um, but it's carried out without a lot of the Uh, the structures that we think of being associated with colonialism. Um, And it's not until the, the 1880s and 1890s uh, um, when the so-called scramble for Africa kicks off uh, that we start to see large scale invasions of African territory and the seizure of African States by European powers. Um, And it's not until really 1900 that these key palm oil producing areas are actually under the control of European colonial powers. Um, And palm oil is not, The major draw, um, looking across the continent, there are a lot of other more important resources from the perspective of European imperialists, but um, conflicts over palm oil uh, in places like Nigeria and neighboring countries, uh, these provide the excuses for imperial invasions um, for powers like Britain and France and Germany. Um, Palm oil happens to be what's there and that's why it provokes these these conflicts. Um,
0: Well, once, Uh, European powers have effectively taken territorial control over um, palm oil producing regions. Does that affect the economy of production and distribution of the commodity?
1: Well, yes and no. Um, The biggest immediate impact is on the actual export trade, on the people who uh, assemble palm oil for export and sell it. Um, And until Uh, formal colonization happens until these wars of conquest happen. Uh, The trade had been in the hands of of African merchants and African uh, states, uh, and they'd often levied pretty significant taxes on them. Uh, They tried to control access to palm oil markets. um, And a lot of the conflicts among African states were over um, uh, access to markets and control. Um, And so the arrival of of European power um, knocks a lot of these um, uh, these middlemen out of their position, um, they they lose the ability to to extract rent from this trade. Uh, they lose the ability to to limit the the flow of palm oil. And so, for producers of palm oil um, who are usually pretty far up in the hinterland, who are, who are one or two or three transactions removed from the European ship at the coast that's loading palm oil, uh, for these producers um, initially there's a real boom in trade. There's an opening of of exports. Um, uh, and a lot of new uh, new entrants joined the business. Um, you know, uh, merchants uh, who had not previously been able to to compete. Um, Uh, in in earlier decades, could suddenly get a start in the business. Um, But in the long run, uh, there are significant impacts for palm oil producers. um, As colonial states begin to impose taxes, they begin to regulate the oil palm industry, trying to control for quality and crack down on fraud. Um, And these things uh, by the 1920s and 30s are are really hitting producers hard because they're bearing the costs of quality control, Uh, but they're often not seeing rewards for it in the form of higher prices. Um, so colonialism does have a real impact, um, but it, it is to ultimately increase the volume of, of palm oil produced. I mean, it doesn't actually diminish this trade uh, at all.
0: Does it uh, change the ultimate destination, the, um, the consumer base uh, the for the commodity? Is more of it going to Europe once European powers have effectively colonized
1: the region of Africa?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, The ratio of palm oil going to Europe certainly increases more palm oil total is produced, Mm -hmm. um, and more of it is made in part because it's easier for rural producers to get it to market to sell. Um, You know, I I don't want to. too happy a gloss on it, but uh, the so-called imperial peace that's brought by these wars of conquest that France and Britain in particular wage um, do bring significantly increased security to many rural areas. People have less fear of being attacked and robbed um, or caught up in wars on the way to market. Um, And so more and more people bring their products to market and they bring it from farther and farther away. Um, colonial transportation, like the railroad and steamship services, and um, and even just dirt roads that can be traveled by bicycle, bring many millions more people into contact with this export economy. Um, so there's a lot more people who have the chance to sell for export um, by by the first half of the 20th century. Um, and uh, so, is is more of it going to different areas? Uh, Europe remains the biggest external consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, But even by 1950, um, in a place like Nigeria, Nigerians were consuming domestically probably about as much palm oil as they were exporting. So there's Hmm. still a massive local demand for palm oil. There's Mm -hmm. still a huge domestic market. And this is is a theme I I try to really pound home in the book, uh, is that... uh, even as they are servicing this, this growing world market, African producers are, are consuming huge amounts of palm oil domestically. Um, and in some colonies, French colonies in particular, um, Ivory Coast and, and Benin, for example, um, local, Markets consume so much palm oil that there's nothing left to export. Uh, palm kernels, which are which are the the nut at the center of the oil palm fruit, uh, kernels become the major export product because people are using all the palm oil domestically. Mm. Um, so there's there's a lot of variation uh, from region to region. Um, uh but but uh, the European takeovers, I would suggest happen because European countries were already consuming palm oil. Um, mm-hmm. I, th- there's not uh, a real redirection of trade uh, that happens as a result.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you sort of open the story uh, from a 21st <laughs> century reader um, by mentioning how Southeast Asia uh, is the such a large source, particularly from uh, plantation economies growing, oil palms, um, so how did that come to be? To, mm-hmm. to this point, we've been very much focused in West Africa where the oil palm has, as you say, centuries, even thousands of years of history. Uh, how is it now that uh, countries in Southeast Asia are growing so much of this commodity uh, and fulfilling a global appetite for it?
1: Right, well, it's a story that really begins uh, with another commodity, rubber. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, oil palm had been in Southeast Asia since at least 1848, uh, probably earlier, but 1848 is the first documented um, importation uh, to what was then the the Dutch East Indies. Um, And the Dutch experimented with oil palm, the British did as well um, in the area, and gave up on it by the 1870s. It was just not very lucrative, it didn't seem to make any sense, Mm -hmm. Um, but the success of plantation rubber beginning in the 1890s really radically transforms what is now Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, It it attracts huge amounts of of European capital. There's massive investment in the region. Um, There's a massive recruitment of indentured labor from Southern India, from China, from Java. so this, this influx of labor and capital uh, in a matter of, of two decades transforms areas that had been thinly populated forests um, into plantation monocultures, uh, mostly growing rubber. Um, and several of these rubber companies um, are aware of the value of oil palm um, uh, there are a number of experiments on a smaller scale with growing palm oil um, alongside or as an alternative to rubber, uh, but it, but it's one uh, particular company. Well, it's now called Sockfin, uh, uh which is uh, led pioneered by a Belgian, um, Adrian Hallet, who had who had been in, in Congo. He had worked in the palm oil industry in Congo. He switches to rubber uh, and then he switches from Congo to Southeast Asia, first first Malaya and then later Sumatra. Um, and from the very beginning, uh, he writes in his own, his own memoirs, uh, he is convinced that oil palm can grow as well or better in Southeast Asia than it can grow in Africa. Um, And so as soon as he gets an opportunity uh, around 1911, um, he starts planting it on a large scale and it sets off just a a boom that the the trade literature is full of really uh, some really outlandish claims about how, how big this industry is gonna be. Um, uh, There's a lot of investment that pours into it. um, A lot of claims that this industry is gonna put West Africa out of business uh, in short order. Um, And it initially doesn't happen. The First World War interrupts a lot of these plans. Um, It prevents plantations from getting machinery, for example. Um, But after the First World War, uh, the oil palm industry really takes off uh, because the fortunes of rubber suddenly decline. Uh, the price of rubber crashes after the First World War and plantation companies are looking for something else. And oil palm seems like the next big thing. And so um, they, they shift capital, they shift labor into, into this new sector. And by by 1930, uh, the island of Sumatra, which is part of the, the Dutch East Indies is exporting as much palm oil as Nigeria. And by 1940, um, it's, it's, it's exporting more than all of Africa combined. Um, And this is largely down to just how incredibly efficient the plantation system is for producing oil palm Mm -hmm. um, compared with with, uh, uh, the varied techniques in West Africa, um, some of which we could fairly call plantation alike, uh, but some of which are, are, are really decentralized, mixed in with other kinds of cropping in which uh, produce a lot of palm oil per labor hour invested, but not a lot per hectare. They're, they're not mm. very efficient on, on, a, on a land um, basis. And so the Southeast Asian plantations can cram lots of trees into one location. They can put a lot of labor uh, to plant and cultivate and harvest them. And the result is just incredible productivity on, on a, on a per, per, uh, per laborer per hectare basis.
0: Mm. Um, I, I would imagine also a uh, result would be the standardization of the end product. Uh, you mentioned uh, at first how, um, mind bogglingly diverse, uh, palm oil can be and is its cultivation is in West Africa. But I would imagine in Southeast Asia, uh, the product coming out of these plantation monocultures is much more standardized. Um, Is that true? And if so, do they select a certain variety of oil palm um, uh, to suit this purpose?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And standardization is really the main justification for plantation cultivation. Mm -hmm. Um, The the costs of the early plantations, uh, despite being incredibly efficient, uh, the costs are not very competitive with with West African costs Mm. um, into the 1920s and 30s. um, Where they excel is in quality control. Um, and as a, as a detail, probably at, at tedious length in the book, uh, palm oil was many different things in Africa. Um, fresh palm oil is consumed locally. Um, it's, it's off. It was by the end of the 19th century, often made in a different way than export grade oil, which was allowed to often naturally ferment and become rancid because it was not used for food. It was used for soap and, and grease and other, other industrial applications. Um, and so, uh, the kinds of, palm oil that were coming out of West Africa, um, varied enormously in quality. Some were uh, really fresh, really edible, uh, bright red, bright orange. Some were black and rancid and and just incredibly foul smelling, according to the accounts we have. Um, And so the plantations, uh, one of the things they hope to do is pr- is to produce that really fresh, top quality oil that can be used in foods like margarine and, and other food industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hope that by capturing the very top end of the market, um, they'll be able to uh, uh um, to, to to be profitable despite the fact that West African production costs are so low mm. um, they're they're hoping to basically eliminate the market for low-end palm oil um, by by flooding the market with this expensive but very high quality palm oil that can mm. be used in food industries mm-hmm. uh,
0: is uh, that that part of the story the advent of um, processed food industries and the tendency of folks to uh, be eating, Pre-processed, pre-packaged foods—that um, mm-hmm. is very much a, a mid-twentieth-century story.
1: Well, it has its roots in the late nineteenth century. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, the, the development of you know the of the tin can um, and other sorts of packaging involving tin plate, um, uh, These things start to bring. Um, not just what we think of as tinned foods you know your, your can of peas but also um, a box that keeps crackers or cookies fresh uh, for a long time these things um, are becoming more and more common in the second half of the 19th century I and mean, by the 1890s they're, they're pretty much everywhere um, and palm oil of course plays a role in tin plating it's it's a very minor but important role um, in, in, in the industrial process that that sticks tin to those iron or steel sheets to protect them from rust and um, but uh, as these foods spread, as people become accustomed to the ideas of eating packaged foods and eating new foods like margarine, which you know initially is not at all a very, appetizing product for many people Um, as they become accustomed to it um, palm oil uh, finds uh, new roles um, as 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 a key ingredient in margarine um, as a baking fat for example in in crackers and biscuits and cookies Um, and it's used uh, mostly in a highly refined state so it's bleached Mm -hmm. it's deodorized it has no flavor Um, consumers would have no idea it was in a product unless manufacturers told them Um, and this again is part of the appeal of palm oil it can be substituted um, because it's cheap with tallow with other vegetable oils with whale oil even Mm. Uh, whale oil is in margarine um alarmingly late into the 20th century it doesn't doesn't fully disappear into the 1960s um and so from the manufacturer's point of view um, they can shuffle around whatever's cheapest um and Mm. often it is Mm. palm oil Um, Often palm oil is the cheapest thing to substitute in at any given time, but this flexibility uh, really appeals to industrial food manufacturers who um, are, are confronting a market where consumers expect a stable product and a stable price over time, but they're buying their raw materials from highly volatile agricultural markets um, uh, where prices are, are moving in all sorts of different directions. And so being able to balance, um, you know, these different commodities by interchanging them is, is a really um, key feature of the, the business success of some of these consumer good companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh,
0: not, not food only, but uh, anywhere that uh, lipids uh, form part of the, mm-hmm. the equation, as you say, with soaps or other cosmetics, uh, etc. that that's just fascinating. Now, what collections at the Hagley Library uh, did you access to help you uncover this story?
1: Yeah, well, the whole project began with um, an exploratory grant to look at the uh, Carter Litchfield papers, and they, uh, Dr. Litchfield was a uh, was an oil chemist. Um, he, he was working in the chemical industry, and he had a very diverse range of interests in the history of oil products, um, and so he collected. Um, on everything on palm oil on linseed oil whale mm-hmm. oil dolphin oil um, you name it if it has something to do with an oil or a fat he collected it he had, he had a huge collection of um uh margin tax stamps as well and published a whole book on margin tax stamps um so Carter Litchfield developed this, this incredible collection of publications, of ephemera, trade cards, advertising, that sort of thing, uh, which, which he, he, he donated to the Hagley. Um, and he also acquired the papers of um, uh, another chemist, Julius Levkovich, um, who was probably the foremost oil chemist in the late 19th century, early 20th century. He died in, I think, 1913, 1914. Um, and uh, Levkovich was one of the pioneers in developing standards um, for testing different oil products, for evaluating uh, what was in something like margarine, what, what chemical tests could you use to tell the difference between tallow or palm oil. Mm. Um, he developed a lot of these tests. He built up a very successful commercial business, oil testing. Um, and he also found investors for a company uh, that was trying to convert palm oil as it was cheaply available from West Africa, which, which is to say rancid, not very nice looking, certainly horrific tasting, uh, trying to convert it into something edible. i um, trying to take this very cheap, but very low value substance and then turn it into a higher value product. And uh, his papers are not as complete as we'd like. Um, but it seems that it It mostly worked. Uh, He was able to use different refining techniques and hydrogenation um, to to turn this really inedible stuff into something that resembled cocoa butter. Uh, He got some chocolate companies to use it and they apparently liked it. Um, And so this this is the collection that got me started. Uh, Just all sorts of materials on palm oil, but also on different other fats and oils. And um, I initially wasn't sure I was going to be writing a book about palm oil. But in trying to sort of tell the story of of Julius Levkovich and and his work, I I sort of uh, got a much bigger appreciation for the role of palm oil in in the industrial food system of the 20th century. Um, And this spiraled into this deeper quest to see, well, where does palm oil as a commodity come from? Um, and so that, that was the key collection, this Carter Litchfield uh, collection. Um, but of course, Hagley has an amazing collection of other ephemera, trade cards, trade publications, um, some of which are digitized. So I consulted a lot of these in person uh, during a, a, an amazing two week visit and then have come back every year to use the online collections, uh, which are just an incredible wealth of resources um, for understanding. Um, in the case of palm oil, uh, particularly for understanding where palm oil wasn't important. And this is something that it's hard mm-hmm. to convey in a book. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the story that I'm not telling, uh, but one of the things that really informed the writing of the book was seeing how palm oil compared with things like cottonseed oil and later mm-hmm. soybean oil. Um, and one of the things that that I, I really appreciated that I really um, learned from from browsing, uh, in this case, trade periodicals, uh, was the sense that palm oil wasn't all that important. You know, it's not the commodity that makes or breaks the industrial world. It's never the most important commodity in any industry. Um, and so, understanding its 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 changing roles and sometimes niche roles was something that, that I think I couldn't couldn't have gotten without looking at all of these these um, these diverse trade publications in all kinds of industries: soap, candles, paint, food, um, you know, iron and steel uh, for tin plating and, and cold rolling steel. Just so many different uses um, across so many different sectors that. Um, would be hard to find in a single archive anywhere else in the world so that was you know just an incredible um from the researcher's point of view just an incredible resource is having all these materials in one place um at, at the hagley
0: mm-hmm. and it uh, the unique position of the commodity mm-hmm. um allowed you to tell a really unique and fascinating story and i so enjoyed reading the book and i so appreciate
1: you speaking with me about it today Oh, well, thank you. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I I hope to certainly be back at the Hagley soon. Oh, yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing you.
0: And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. Visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. And don't be a stranger.